Thank you for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast with your wonderful co-host, your mighty co-host, Kirk. How's it going, Kirk? It's going great. Hello, hello. Just pumping some iron, trying to get godlike, like, uh, you know, your boy Thor. Yeah. I mean... Hemsworth shape is a that's that's a next level. That's that's. I don't think any. I, I think you have to be godlike in order to achieve it. I don't know how he does it. It's amazing. I've seen the Instagram videos. I mean, I've seen what he, what he does, but I still don't believe that it's actually attainable. Um, I am your other co-host, Cam. I'm wearing the the Thor dad bod, um, bro Thor. I think is what they call him. That's the shirt that I'm wearing. Yes. Because that Thor physique is definitely attainable. Um. I'm there. I feel good about it. I'm on. I'm on the path. Uh, and he also plays video games, which I dig. Brothor is all about the vibes, and I enjoyed that. I know that he was like very much depressed at that time, but every other factor of his life, I feel like he was in a good position. He was yelling at children on the internet over the headset. <laughs> um, noob master, you know, he was he was really living it up. Yeah, he was all about self-care. He knew yes. that he was in a state where he couldn't take care of himself, so he was looking for the finer things that brought him joy. Uh, when you become in that state, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. That's right. Uh, I'm wearing the classic Thor from its uh, his original appearance that I got in, I think I got this shirt in Disneyland, if mm. I'm correct. Could be. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Classic Thor. It's Gotta him. love it. It's him. And we are going to be talking all about Thor today we are going to be talking all about thor because the new film thor love and thunder the fourth film in the thor franchise has officially hit the theaters and kirk and i just returned from the theaters after having seen it it is we're we're rapidly approaching 1 a.m here on friday morning and so we were just so dedicated we wanted to get this review out to you guys you know we're all about the hustle and it's it's been a weird week because we didn't have our stream Monday night because of the fourth, but we knew that Thor was coming out, so we just said, you know what, let's just put all our chips in that basket. Rather than going to see the Minions, recording a review of Minions, and then having to record another review of Thor, let's go see Thor, and then we can provide a spoiler-free Thor Love and Thunder review. So when all of you kiddos are rushing to the theater this weekend to check out the latest MCU flick, you'll be able to get our thoughts on it prior to entering the theater. And I think that's a pretty good plan, Kirk. I mean, if I do say so ourselves, ourselves, did you say spoiler free, spoiler free, spoiler free, we can't give too much away this time guys. So no. it's going to be a little bit different. It's like a throwback that's right. to our original format. So strap in for, and listen freely because we're not going to tell you any of the nitty gritty details. You don't have to worry about it. We'll talk about what makes the movie good. What makes the movie bad? If there's anything that makes it good or bad, and we'll get into it. This is going to be extreme. We've done this one other time. We did it with Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad, I should say. James Guns. And it's an extremely difficult task, but it's good. It, it hones our skills. It keeps us sharp. It, it makes us react to things rapidly, very rapidly. Like I literally, we left the theater no more than 30 minutes ago. So I haven't even really had time to let this marinate. Usually... Usually we sit on movies for days prior to recording our reviews. So that's right. This will be quite the task. And you know, there's always these things like you hear people say it. 
Upon watching the movie a second time, I thought this, which is very true. Sometimes you your brain doesn't take in everything the right way to interpret it the first time or the way that you're, you know, you, you can have a later final interpretation that's different. So we'll be testing our recency bias here. We'll be testing our skills to be able to give a score that we can stick with after one viewing 30 minutes later, we're just going to go. Are you ready, Kirk? Bam. I am ready like Stormbreaker in a massive battle against aliens and I'm so tired. I'm just yeah. So there, there, there it is. I was waiting for that. I was like, he's not gonna. Yeah, I was like, he's going. He's doing the Michael Scott thing. Like sometimes you start a sentence and you don't know where you're going. I could sense that from the very beginning. But glad, you knew. glad to know that you're uh, firing on all cylinders, Kurt. Yeah, no plan going into that line. All right, I'll take the floor then because I have the honor of doing the synopsis for this film for our spoiler-free review. So. I feel like most of what I will provide are things that you would have seen in the trailers, but if you are someone who avoids the trailers, Thor Love and Thunder uh, takes place immediately following the events of, well, pretty close to following the events of Avengers Endgame, where Thor has picked himself up, he's with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and he's heading out to try to find himself, really, trying to find out what he even has left. You know, Thor, his arc has been... (laughs) We always think of Spider-Man as like a tragic hero. Look at Thor. He's really been a tragic hero in the MCU. Lost his mom, lost his dad, lost his brother, Loki. Has no idea that Loki's actually still out there. Um, He's lost Heimdall. You know, he's lost all these people. He's broken up with Jane. Um, He, 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 you know, he's lost Tony Stark. I mean, just endless, endless um, numbers of, of complaints and issues in his life. And so... He's had quite the arc, and so he needs to reset. So we get we start the movie with a little bit of like Zen Thor. He's trying to find himself, and he realizes that you know it's time for him to spread his wings and kind of go off and do his own thing. But right as soon as he does, there's a new threat, and that is Christian Bale appearing as Gore the God Butcher. Um, big big time casting for an MCU villain. And, of course, as also shown in the trailer, he reunites with an old flame, who is Jane Foster, who is now donning the title of the Mighty Thor, complete with a reassembled Mjolnir. Um, And he has to deal with not only this new threat and trying to find himself, but also being thrust into battle with his, you know, alongside his his ex-girlfriend. So that is really what's going on in there is a ton that ensues from there, but that is the general premise. Unless you think there's anything else I need to add, Kirk. No, I mean, some of our favorites are back. We get Valkyrie who was introduced in Ragnarok. Yes. We get Korg or fan favorite, absolute fan favorite. And uh, also from the trailer and mostly from the, uh, the poster, the individual posters that came out, we get some very fantastic goats in this film. And also, I think we'll become fast favorites with the vans. It's it's a fun ride. Yeah, that's that's becoming a bit a bit of a staple. I feel like with Marvel in Phase Four is like these animal sidekicks. Like we had, um, oh man, I'm totally forgetting the name of the thing from Shang Chi, but you know what I'm talking about the the thing with, that had like four legs, no oh. no face or eyes, but like wings. <laughs> Um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> there was that. There's, of course, Pizza Dog from Hawkeye. Yes. Um, 
there's been a few. There's been a few different sidekicks, so I feel like this is continuing the, the trend here. I think Kevin Feige heard that The Rock was going to be voicing, you know, Super Pets, and he's like, guess what? I will position myself if that movie does a million dollars, and I will immediately release the creatures of the MCU. Well, you know there is Pet Avengers. Pet, right. Like, Pet Pet Avengers is a real thing. There's, like, Lockjaw, who's an inhuman, and, uh, you know, th- there there is precedent for that. So I think, yeah, if, if DC League of Super Pets takes off, it definitely has a chance, but um, man, I cannot remember the name of that thing, and it's going to drive me Norris. It's Norris, isn't it? Norris. That's yeah, right. there we go. Okay, oh, it's back. That's right. It's back. Anyway, um, but yeah, so the goats, which are, uh, I'll just add this in here. Those are uh, from the comics. the The goats are actually shut up. No, they, they're not. They are the goats oh, are in gosh. the comics. Um, so worth noting. I th- I can't remember their names, but one of them's like tooth grinder or something like that. Like they, they have a name They're from the, I think the same run of comics that actually Gore, the God butcher appears in because Gore is a newer character in the comics. I think we mentioned that on a previous episode. So a lot of this stuff is, is newer in the comic landscape. But before we dig into all that, let's talk about the performances in this movie, because this movie marks, of course, the first appearance of Christian Bale in the Marvel cinematic universe, something he recently made light of in an interview where he, they were saying, uh, he said, people kept telling him, Oh, you've entered the MCU. You've entered the MCU. And he says, I've entered what I've not entered anything. I'm just (laughs) doing a movie. Uh, and of course the return of Natalie Portman as Dr. Jane Foster, um, at long last. So let's talk about those performances and see if any of those actors that I mentioned got our, and the Oscar goes to superlative. I'm going to take the floor first. And I'm giving my Oscar to Chris Hemsworth. Um, There are some great performances in this movie, but I have to say that this is Chris Chris Hemsworth's ninth appearance as Thor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I just think what he's been able to build is totally incredible. And the fact that he has transitioned drastically in terms of his character from Thor 1 all the way to where we're at now. But the biggest turn for his character was in Thor Ragnarok when Taika Waititi took the reins, revamped the tonality of this character, the trajectory of this character's plot line um, and arc, and has totally set him off into a new direction. And yet, what I really like about what Thor, what Chris Hemsworth does as Thor is that if you go back and watch those old movies, it doesn't feel inconsistent. Even though he's doing things that are tonally different, he's saying lines that are goofier, quirkier, he's doing a lot more humor, he's playing up the humor a lot more. If you go back and watch those early Thor performances, it doesn't feel like a totally different character, which is, I think, intentional on Chris Chris Hemsworth's part to make sure that the character is staying the same even though the flavor and the color of the character is changing um, because he understood that the character needed to grow and that he needed to grow with it. And he has just helped that transition along so well. And I feel like in this movie, even more so than Ragnarok, um, he really is just totally in line with the delivery and um, vision of Taika Waititi. He knows exactly how to hit all his comedic lines in this movie really leans heavily on trying to play up the comedy, um, even more so than Ragnarok, if you can believe that. They really, really lean hard into 
comedic elements, um, jokes, humor throughout, physical comedy, etc. And Chris Hemsworth's totally along with along for the ride, and he is the character that feels the most aligned with the world that Taika has created, and that's totally necessary for these movies to work. So, um, just I continue to be impressed by what Chris Hemsworth is able to do with this character, and especially impressed with the connection that he and Taika seem to have struck with this new vision of Thor and how seamless it feels and, and the direction of it. And I think that's just because Chris Hemsworth has been doing his homework. He understands this character. He built this character and he's continuing to evolve it. Even after four solo films, all of the Avengers films, etc. he continues to do it. Um, and I thought he was spectacular in this movie as well. Mr. Chris, Mr. Chris Hemsworth, number two on the Chris list rating, just a reminder. And he also gets my, Oscar goes to it's that simple he's Thor he's on my shirt I would love to get a tattoo of him if I ever had the gall or the bravery to get a tattoo I will say that uh, I'll hold some notes for my director's shoes about the tonality of the character uh, but he can do it all there's no there's no uh, hiding in it there's no shame in it there's no forced effort of it is that chris hemsworth has all of these shades and all of these colors within his personality and w- within his acting arsenal and what he does with that is pretty incredible uh you love to see the the complete silliness that people are allowed to be silly so let him be silly he's faced against insane things around him so if he if he can <laughs> if he can uh fly around on a, on a goat um can't he also crack a joke or or just be an absolute uh, doof. I don't know. Like that's that's what I love about that side of Thor that we've seen in Ragnarok and especially here in Love and Thunder. What I also love is that when he locks in on his truest self and when the stakes are the highest you just see his eyes turn and his face reshape and you say there he is so even if you are someone who is like looking for uh, the Kenneth Branagh uh, Shakespearean Thor which I think we wanted more of this colorful Thor than that which is which is wonderful and, and evolved and it's fantastic but when you see him lock into those moments it's absolutely magical on film uh so he he does it so seamlessly that i feel like such a veteran actor needs to know and let's let remind you that chris hemsworth has not been acting for you know 30 years it's it's coming up on like 15 uh in, in the film world which is pretty fantastic and so wonderful that we've had so many experiences with him in this character i am just Always, always, always excited to see him on screen because he never lets us down. Let's go, Chris Hemsworth. Yes, good notes all around. Uh, Let's go to what's probably the more contentious of the two awards here, though I think that there's a case to be made for other people getting the Oscar goes to potentially, but I would say that Scene Stealer is where you really find yourself struggling because at the end of the day, this is a, this is a very Thor centric movie. It's not like some of these other movies, like think about Captain America civil war, where that movie feel, starts to feel less like a, like a Captain America movie and more like an Avengers movie. And there have been other times where as the franchise grows, you lose focus on the main character. This movie doesn't have that problem. So Thor is definitely front and center, which is why it's so, so easy to look to him for the Oscar best actor type of award. Um, 
but the scene stealer is definitely contentious. For me, I'm going with the return of Dr. Jane Foster. I'm going with Natalie Portman in this film um, because she tapped back into her character so easily, and this is not a character that she has a huge track record with. She was in two films. Um, in both of those movies, there wasn't a ton of time for character development. I mean, Chris Hemsworth has done this nine times with Thor. This is her third time with Dr. Jane Foster. And really in the, you know, in the second movie you do in the second Thor movie, you do get a decent amount of Jane Foster time, but really the first movie doesn't go that deep yet. And I feel like her character is so interesting because she has this like cringy level of nerdiness about her, um, which is actually really endearing. Like it, it, it makes her feel a lot more real that she tells these like horrible cheesy jokes and like is awkward and weird. Um, and it, it makes the, the love that Thor and Jane feel for each other so much more realistic because they're kind of both in a fish out of water situation. Um, and she just tapped back into that so easily in this role. And I feel like she was asked so much to do so much more because Taika was totally unleashed in this movie and was just like asking all of his characters to do really goofy stuff. And sometimes she had to deliver like the cringiest of, of dad jokes in the world, but it made total sense in her character within the framework of that character. And the personal moments were really where she just like, amped it up whenever she's having conversations with Thor um, about their past, about what's happening to them now, about her situation, um, which I won't go too far into. If, if, you're, if you've read the comics, you're going to be familiar with the nature of Dr. Jane Foster's transition to Thor, but otherwise I will let that be a little bit of a plot surprise for you guys so as not to spoil it. But she really... Um, She's, she's fully back as Dr. Jane Foster. It doesn't feel like sometimes whenever you bring somebody back later down the line and they're just like, it feels totally gimmicky and weird. She feels like a real character. She feels like the character she built in those older movies. And um, she adds more as well. And that was desperately needed in order to make this movie work because it, it is, as you would imagine, centrally focused on sort of their relationship past present and future and so uh, she had to knock it out of the park and I think that she did and I think that Christian Bale did as well just to give that part like I really did think Christian Bale was awesome he always brings it for me it just came down to screen time and I, I felt like Gore didn't get enough I, I wanted more Gore I wanted more Dr. Jane Foster as well to be honest but um, she had some more time to shine whereas Gore really he did his work in limited screen time, so I had to had to give it to uh, Natalie Portman, Dr. Jane Foster. Well, that is perfectly fine, because I will give mine to Mr. Christian there Bale. There you go. I really wish that Christian Bale was British, because I feel like he would be a, have a fantastic knighted name. So Christian he is Bale. He's British. What is wrong with me? <laughs> He's I'm not so a knight, but he, is, but he is very British. Well, good. Then he will absolutely be knighted one day and he will be Sir Christian Bale. I'm just speaking it into the universe. I'm so tired. I cannot reiterate that enough. Christian Bale, <laughs> almost, we should be thankful for his presence in this film because he was almost not in it. It's that simple. Um, there were possible scheduling conflicts. There were COVID quarantines. There were, he's got a big slate coming up, honestly. Uh, and the fact that he's done his time 
in superhero movies. He was, of course, Bruce Wayne and Batman in the Dark Knight trilogy. So there was a lot working against him. The reason he chose to do this was that his kids actually encouraged him to do it, which is hilarious because he's the villain and quite the scary villain, uh, as to be expected and as seen in the trailers at that. He definitely lives up to it. They have a great motive behind his uh, his or his origin villain story. And there are just so many um, just real things that he brings to this uh, spoiler free, spoiler free, spoiler free. <laughs> I think that uh, the, the truest part of this is how haunted he is by his motivation. Therefore he has zero uh, restrictions on the chaos and destruction and pain that he will bring to others because he is so filled with that because of what's happened to him uh, that he is not going to allow anyone else to feel joy or happiness and it's very very impressive i've i've seen a lot of christian bale performances and so many that he's convinced me that he's not british and i think that this is just another one of his top 10. It's absolutely mesmerizing. Bravo again, Mr. Soon-to-be Sir Christian Bale. Nice. This reminds me of the time when I went on for a really long time in our Nola Holmes review about how good Millie Bobby Brown's (laughs) British accent was, only to be horrified later by the fact that she is full-fledged british and i sounded like an absolute idiot so uh no egg on your face glad we were able to catch it this time let's be Uh, clear he is absolutely from wales yeah i I was gonna say bale is also like a very british last name so um not not that you can have i mean you can have a british last name and live in the u.s and be an american citizen obviously but i digress um i will say Christian Bale is, is uh, he might be my favorite. I, I, I change all the time, but he honestly might be my favorite actor ever. I think he's absolutely spectacular. I've never seen him turn in a bad performance. I just frankly have not seen it, um, which there's really very few people you can say that about. And this villain rocks. <laughs> this yeah. villain is awesome. People always, I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show. People always slam the Marvel villains. I think for good reason. I think Marvel has had a villain problem in the past. Save Michael Keaton's Vulture, uh, Michael B. Jordan's uh, Killmonger, and Thanos. I think those are really like... And then also Shang-Chi. I thought uh, Win-Woo, incredible. But incredible. I they have Kurt had... Kurt Russell is up there too. Mm-hmm. Ego, that's good. Uh, yeah, but there, like, there are a lot of villains that are very forgettable. Don't feel... You don't feel... Uh, empathy for them you don't you can't see their side of the story not the case with gore gore is a very sympathetic villain um you totally see where he's coming from and christian bale turns in another performance for the ages i just wish we had more i just was craving more um but we'll talk about that more in the production of the movie which we'll get into right now let's just dive into it um let's talk showstopper kirk and let's get into our favorite things about the movie Here's what I'm going with, <laughs> and this is this is interesting because so there was so much chatter on the Twitterverse about this particular factor in the movie, and that's the visual effects. The visual effects are my showstopper. I thought this movie looked freaking awesome, particularly um, combat special effects I thought was insane. All of the lightning um, effects gores like shadow blade effect that was going on 
totally sick. Um, the the like Thunderbolt that they show in the trailer now, like the most recent trailer um, that Zeus holds and that you also see Thor holding in the trailer. Awesome effect there. And I thought they were just totally leaning into it. Now, here's the thing that I want to make clear. In the trailers, there was a lot of talk about the backgrounds, okay? Like, to provide some context, this film, like many of the Marvel projects and many of the projects coming out of Disney right now, did use the stagecraft technology called the volume, which we've talked about on this show before. This is the LED panels that create a digital set around um, the performers so that they can see. It is a replacement for green screen and it allows the characters or the, the actors playing the characters to interact in what looks like a real, a more realistic environment for them. So it's, it's good for the actors and it can be really good. As we've seen in The Mandalorian, it can be excellent. The Mandalorian, Loki, two great examples of how to use this um, technology effectively. That said, it has come under criticism lately because there are times where under the wrong direction, particularly the wrong cinematography, it can look really cheap and it can make things stick out like a sore thumb. I think we saw a little bit of that in Obi-Wan Kenobi. We saw a lot of that in, in Book of Boba Fett. There are just times where it doesn't look quite right. Um, and, and a lot of that's due to the lighting. Lighting can be tricky with it, but... You know, Greg Fraser, who is the cinematographer for The Mandalorian, is obviously a genius. Um, he did amazing work with it and made those textures look so, so real. Um, as well as Loki, and I'm, I'm going to pull up the name of the cinematographer because I think she's fabulous and I have totally forgotten her name. But um, under the right direction, it can be done really, really, really well. And in the trailers for this movie, people were pointing out like, oh my gosh, look how cheesy it looks. Um, Autumn, Autumn Durald uh, Arkapaw is the name of the cinematographer from Loki, by the way. But people were saying that, particularly in the scene that they kept showing with the Guardians of the Galaxy where they're on that planet and there's kind of that like purplish blue um, sunrise backdrop behind them. They're mm -hmm. like, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, this looks so cheesy. But in the finished product, it did not look cheesy. And in fact... That particular scene is actually like a throwback to like 80s glam rock, um, I don't know, adventure type movies. Think Labyrinth, think like Fraggle Rock, think like uh, um, Never Ending Story, things like that. It's, it's an aesthetic choice. It's a genre choice and it's made throughout this movie to make things look like that. And so at times whenever it looks like you can tell that they're on a backdrop or whatever. That's an intentional thing for the genre, which I think obviously you can't have that context from the trailer, but at no other point is it glaring. And in fact, the movie looks gorgeous, not just backgrounds, but also the effects. Um, there are some really ambitious choices with the special effects, particularly whenever they go into like the shadow realm, um, which you see in the trailers, like the black and white area that we constantly see gore in. That's kind of like where he hangs. Um, really cool stuff that they do there in terms of they do some like almost stop motion type effects, some really cool stuff with the shadows, the combat there, the use of like um, 
grayscale versus full color. There is some really interesting stuff from an effects standpoint. And the other thing, I know I've gone on way too long about this, but the other thing about it is that it's all consistent. You can see why they're making the visual choices. Anytime there's a difference, like I mentioned with that one scene where it's like kind of that like they're leaning into that like 80s glam sci-fi adventure type movie shtick, you can see why they're doing that. And then it changes styles, but everything flows really nicely. And when they change styles, you know why they're doing it, but the effects all gel really well. The backdrops, the lighting, um, all the, the effects that they used, everything digital looked really excellent. I think it's the best that Marvel has looked actually in a long time. So it's, it's funny to me that like the thing people were worried about, and I actually, I, I felt the same way watching the trailers. I was like, Ooh, some of this does not look good. Um, I thought it looked awesome in the finished product. Yeah. I think it's fair to be concerned, but we also just like the She-Hulk controversy, She-Hulk released its first trailer and everyone's like, this looks terrible. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. Garbage. Put some more money into it. And then like one week later they said, Hey, don't worry. We're still fine tuning. That was the plan all along. Not like a Sonic the Hedgehog situation. It was literally like CGI takes a really long time to perfect and like yeah. get the artist to fine tune. Like you do understand listeners that when you, when people draw cartoons, you know, it's not in full color every frame. No, they, they stencil it out. They have the movement there and then the colorist comes in and, and splashes the paint. So this is what that is. I love the, uh, the, the volume uh, that. Uh, I love that look because you're always going to have that look unless you can actually re recreate the mm -hmm. entire world, which is impossible yeah. uh, to take us to these fantastical places. So you either get a green screen look behind it, which you know is not real, but you have to suspend your disbelief, right? Or you get this LED screen uh, with a very specific tone, hue, color balance to it that gives you that eighties feel. So yeah. Or you get, or you get like a really small scale, fully practical situation, yeah. which can be used at times. But when you're talking about a huge intergalactic battle or running across a new planet or something like that there. And that's the good thing about the, the volume is that when used correctly, it looks great and you can mix practical in there because it is a screen that goes around you. And then you can build sets within that. It's like a big dome. Um, right. so it, it really has, I get why people have complaints about it to your point. Like it, it, there are times where it's been abused, but when done correctly, it looks really excellent. Right. You can't just set it up. Like I can't just put a TV behind me and say, look at me, I'm in Australia. No, like that's, that's not, that's not how yeah. it works. There is an art form to it still. Yes. Um, much like think of it like when you go to a concert and there are all these visuals flashing on screens um, there there's a there's a band I think think they're called like the ARJ or AGR brothers and they use a lot of cool stuff like this uh, with with their screenings and with with their flashes of lights and and how they interact with it so if you can just not pick it apart <laughs> honestly you won't even focus on it so if you're if you're someone who was like hating it ex extremely worried about it watching the trailer if you just throw that out the window and focus on the story it all blends together and not in like a please look past it way it, it just focus on what they're what the director what taika is trying to make you look at and everything else puts the picture as it's supposed to be in the frame and also and I hope that there's a lesson here for all of the film Twitter people who were being snobs about this, the trailers and the, the shots that they release, like whenever they're like, 
new scene from Thor Love and Thunder, the things that they released beforehand, are never finished, ever, because they had to get them prepped and ready to go months ago so that they could prepare the marketing and media package for the movie. So it's never, ever finished. So never... You can you can never judge the visual effects by the trailer. You just should not. It just should not happen. So film Twitter, luckily, is really rational and understanding, so I'm sure they'll be able to... I'm just kidding. They're among the most <laughs> irrational people ever, but um, hopefully they learn that lesson so I don't have to see people whine about it in my timeline anymore, but this is certainly uh, another bit of evidence in that camp. So visual effects. All right, Kirk, what's your showstopper? My showstopper is very simple. It's a condensed version of yours. It goes down to the Shadow Realm fight scene. Um, You've seen it in the trailer. You see just black and white, and you see all this shadow, uh, which is perfect because when you see Gore, he is this villain just draped in this, not muddy, but in this distilled, uh, distorted white uh, where you see these these fangs you can see it if you're watching on, on YouTube right now you can see the fangs in the in the poster picture and you see like this total just dissonance this total like upsetting character to look at and so then you get this beautiful visual with light and darkness black and white good and evil and just some of the most creative things I've ever seen done in film before um he didn't hold back and because that taika was able to create the world in color with limitless opportunities when he got to black and white he had just as many opportunities to tell the story it wasn't like um he was telling like a straight comedy up until that point and then decided okay great we're gonna get crazy now no like the risks that he was able to take in in the front part of this film before we get to this uh, shadow realm fight scene it's really really perfectly progressing into that Um, i thought it was beautifully shot wonderfully well done unpredictable entirely you didn't know which way was up which is exactly what needed to happen in that scene so that shadow realm fight scene when you guys get to it just strap in it is so exciting fun and scary all at the same time yeah i love how they sort of when it comes to gore and specifically when they're on that planet they they do some like really old practical type effects as well um, and mix it with new school, like super high tech visual effects. Gore, I mean, almost certainly has to be partially inspired by Nosferatu, at least the way that they interpreted him on film. The way he moves is Nosferatu-esque. His design is Nosferatu. And they did some like early 1900s type like aesthetics and looks in that shadow realm to make him come across that way. And it just adds a level of creepiness. It adds a, it, it's, it's something just totally different that we really haven't, haven't seen in modern. I mean, certainly not modern comic book movies, but I haven't seen anything yeah. like that in a while and they played it up really nicely. And, and I just love that touch because I think it's, it's a very clear homage, but one that brings new life to the the techniques that we saw in those older films. Something that's so good about the light and darkness is that you have all of these dark spots, all of these shadows. And so then you can make characters disappear. You can make them visibly yes. hard to see. And that those moments where you don't know where someone is, uh, whether it's a hero or a villain, those moments are 
your mind is racing, right? So like you might have an idea of where they're at, but you're like, what's happening to them? Are, are they gone? Is this the end of them? Have they fallen into a hole? Have they, your, your mind just like fills in the blanks, which is exactly what the director and the storyteller want you to do because yes. the unknown is scarier than more, more times than not scarier than what you're seeing on screen. So That's right. bravo. That's right. Um, they always talk about that with horror. The effect is, is usually lost once you see the thing, you know? So it's good to use the, use the shadows to your advantage to create something in people's imaginations. It's, it's creative. Um, let's talk about director shoes, um, and some things that we would have notes on for me. And this is always a big one with me with sequels. And we've seen so many franchises fall into this, but it's the scale. It's the scale. The stakes and the scale feel small in this movie. And I think that the story is fundamentally sound. I feel like there's good character work. There's a good arc. There's a reason for the story. Um, Within Thor's arc, it's clear kind of where we started, where we are going, and why we had to go through this journey to get there. So the story, I don't have a problem with. Certainly some pacing issues. Um, this movie is very short in terms of runtime. It's it's below two hours, which is unheard of in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I'm pretty sure. It just does not happen. But um, the bigger problem is the scale and the stakes. This feels like... It feels like a sequel. It feels like something that is not ready to build to something much bigger, but doesn't want to not go anywhere, you know, it, it, like something it reminds me of is kind of like Star Trek Beyond, which is what I always use as the, as the poster child for this, where it's just like, okay, that was a story, <laughs> you know, like it just, it, it doesn't necessarily super further the character from where we found them. It does, it, you know, it does, they do some stuff with Thor, but I feel like ultimately it feels like another chapter in the book of Thor rather than like, its own thing and its own installment. And it doesn't feel like the stakes are incredibly high. I don't feel like at any point you're concerned about the outcome of it, or there are all these competing forces that are making it feel like you're being pulled in different directions. And you're like, Oh man, if this happens or that happens or this happens, I'm going to be really upset because it all just feels very self-contained. Um, which in some ways is refreshing for Marvel because we I literally just talked about with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse and Madness that that movie felt like it was being pulled in different directions by the MCU, by the fact that it was beholden to all of these different storylines and plot lines that were happening. So to have something like Thor Love and Thunder where it's totally not, it's its own thing. It's just a Thor story. You know, it's not really anything else. There's not wider things at play is good, but I think that there needs to be a balance because... I think in this franchise, meaning that not just the Thor franchise, but the the larger um, Marvel Cinematic Universe, something that really gives these movies purpose is the ability to have high stakes and to impact things outside of what's happening just within the, the movie. That is what makes this whole thing work. So... There is a, a delicate balance to be struck there, and I felt like this one was too far on the side of the scale toward self-containment, low stakes, episodic in a way, um, and I felt like it it held the movie back. Um, and I think the pacing did that as well because 
there's not as much room for character growth and, and relationship growth and things like that. You know, we, I'd like to spend more time with our villain. I'd like to spend more time with, uh, Dr. Jane Foster and, and Thor individually and together. Um, there are just a few different ways. I mean, Tessa Thompson's character Valkyrie, uh, is mostly an afterthought in this movie. It just feels like she got more time in Ragnarok and it's not really clear what her total role is in this movie. So, um, I think the bigger issue for me more so than pacing is definitely scale and stakes, but pacing, I think contributed slightly to that as well. Excellent. That is correct. My director's shoes. I still promise you I'm going to find some really cheap shoes and write director all over them so that I can hold it up <laughs> whenever we do this piece. But, no, you don't hold it up. You have to wear it and then you have to, you have to painstakingly pull your foot up to where it can be seen on the webcam. Right. I can do that. I can make that work. Um, I'll have like a second cam set up <laughs> and I'll like wheel my chair Shoe over cam. that way. And <laughs> I think that we get a lot of the fourth joke in the comedy of this film. Unfortunately, I it's most painstakingly noticed when we are against the guardians where, you know, their comedic timing and comedic skill and just trust in each other is so strong that when you have their team making jokes that don't land in coordination with Thor and there should be some friction there because he's not officially part of their team he's forced himself in there but when you have it you can kind of see this tension that should be working in a different way um you have someone as as talented and as skilled as Chris Pratt landing his lines and it not sticking to Thor to Chris Hemsworth so I think that there are there's too much of uh, what's commonly referred to now as the fun run uh, made famous in parks and rec where they would just get to have X amount of takes where they just did whatever they wanted. They improv. I think that there is some, uh, some forced or forced improv in here or too long of improv that was allowed that then was written into the script. And those nuances I think held this movie back because there are moments uh, specifically with Jane and, and Thor where we want to feel what they're feeling, whether it be more awkward, whether it may be more uh, more loving and more engaged, like lovers, like latched onto each other, right? Like having an intimate moment of, of what they're searching, their feelings. What we get in this is that some of those, those heartfelt quirky moments start quirky and then they get lost or, or ran down by the, the total freedom and lack of, conciseness with with where the scene was supposed to go and part of that is Tyka's style part of it is that he he beats to his own drum for sure and that kind of humor it just absolutely slays in a lot of markets and to his benefit as well it's what made Thor Ragnarok so great but it had more of a, a tighter leash on it he had more of a vision per scene versus let's do what we want because we can. And that's what it felt like with this. So um, I, I also agree that this movie uh, absolutely was a, was a good, was a great story to be told. You're not going to look back at this years later and say, you know, like Rocky six, where you're just like, why are we doing this again? This is not that case at all. You'll look at this and you'll say, oh, great. That next story in the Thor saga was really important for X, Y, Z. Um, or even if this is the last Thor standalone film with Chris Hemsworth, you know, 
all in all, you will look at this and say, number one is great. Number two happened. Number three was fantastic. And number four was great to enjoy what was going on with the character study of him. So all in all, I really do. For me, it really felt like, again, the fourth joke, uh, which is uh, jokes should be in rounds of three. They were continuing those things over. They were allowing too much uh, freedom for the characters in those comedic moments, and they didn't rein it in. Uh, and specifically, if you look at Thor Ragnarok, there are these quick jokes, and then they run away from them. They drop them, and you are, before you can realize what's happening with the insanity of some of those jokes, they're on to the next one, which is not related to the last one. So it's pretty, pretty great uh, to see what that what that was in Thor Ragnarok. I wish we could have captured that magic uh, before, but now um, that's where I stand with my director's shoes. I agree with that. That's my other big one. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to choose one, but that, that is definitely was a contender as well, because I felt like there was, there were a lot of times where there are so many jokes per minute in this movie, like more so than we've seen in the MCU, I think to date. And, a fair amount, like more than you would expect, just don't land. They just right. don't. And and there there are full bits that just never hit. And they spend a, a ton of time painstakingly building out the joke so that they can hit it X number of times and not one time does it hit, um, which is weird. Like you're not used to seeing that in these movies. Um it's it's a bizarre thing, but it's it's absolutely true. Like I felt like pretty ambitious on the comedic front, and a lot of it hits. You know, like seventy five percent of it does hit, and a lot of the laughs are good, um, really good, legit, genuine laughs. But the stuff that doesn't hit is brutal at times. It just does not totally right. play, and I feel like that is where you get the okay. We've got too much Taika going on. You know, like this, this really was like, this felt much more like Taika was getting carte blanche on this film more so than, than Ragnarok. But, um, in some ways that was not necessarily good, but not bad in other ways it was bad. Um, but I felt like the visuals and stuff were great. And I actually like some of the stuff that was really weird that at first I was like, Ooh, I don't, I don't like this. I really liked, but some of the stuff I really didn't like, um, with a particular set piece in the movie that involves like the other gods, I would say that like a lot of stuff that was happening there did not land for me. And a lot of those, like a lot of those bits were not working and it kind of made that whole segment not work in my opinion. So Mm -hmm. totally Mm -hmm. agree with you, man. I think that there was, they were swinging for the fences on a lot of this humor and it just did not totally fly. So, all right, let's wrap this up. Final thoughts and scores for Thor love and thunder. Um, this is, this is interesting because whenever, uh, Marvel studios and Kevin Feige did their big hall H San Diego comic-con reveal in whatever it was, 2018, 2019, where they were just dropping bombs left, right and center. And we were hearing about all these movies, this, you know, they brought Natalie Portman up on stage and it was, it was huge. It's a day that I will never forget. We were podcasting that day. We ran through all the stories on the podcast. There were thousands of them. We were trying to react. It was nuts. Um, so it must've been 2019 actually, now that I say that, but 
it was incredible. But the last movie that was on that screen was Thor Love and Thunder. It was the very last thing on the timeline. So this is, you know, this this to me is like a milestone for MCU Phase 4. And we can talk a little bit more about the MCU. Maybe we'll do that in our next episode or something like that whenever we've had some more time to digest. But this movie, I was expecting, you know, this is a legacy character. This is one of, this is their only major character to carry over from that original six of the Avengers like Tony Stark gone Black Widow gone Clint doing the Hawkeye show but has never had standalone movies Bruce Banner Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner has never had a standalone movie um and then you've got Thor and who am I forgetting Cap who's had standalone movies he's also gone replaced by Sam Wilson Captain America um so this is like this is their last flagship guy. And so I was really expecting this one to be a big hallmark movie for phase four, a place where they stick their flag in the ground and say, this is where that we are going. And I didn't get that. I felt like this movie had um, uh, the opposite problem that Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness had. Ironically, like it was not connected enough to the rest of the MCU. It was, it had a good story, whereas Doctor Strange, that's where it struggled was the story. But it struggled here with like making us care about the the larger things that are happening and the larger forces at play. It just kind of kept it too scoped in. I mean, we've talked about the jokes um, in the comedy, which, which hits more often than not for sure, but there are times where it doesn't and it hurts. And I think that people who liked Ragnarok will mostly like this movie, but people who didn't like Ragnarok are going to hate this. <laughs> if people, like people who didn't like Ragnarok are really going to hate this movie because this is just leaning way harder into the Taika stuff. And the dude to his credit has his own style and his own, his own way to go. And I like a lot of what he does. No doubt what we do in the shadows, Jojo rabbit, um, Thor Ragnarok. I was a fan of that movie. But he swings for the fences, and he's ambitious, and he does not pull his punches, certainly not in this movie. And I think that sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not so good. So, man, it's so hard to score this movie. I I really liked the story, which is where, for me, if they can get the story right in a movie like this, it's like, okay, then I can rewatch that because it has that element that I like, and I really like a lot of the characters. But I definitely feel like this is not top-tier MCU. I don't feel like it's better than Ragnarok. Um, I feel like Ragnarok is still the bar for Thor. And it, I mean, it's, I don't think it's a top 10 or maybe even 15 MCU film. So I think I got to give it a 7.8 out of 10 kernels. That's, that's where I'm landing it. it for me, 8.0 is where you hit great movie territory. I think this movie is held back by some of the things that Kirk and I discussed. And so it doesn't quite reach that threshold. I really enjoyed it still, but it has its problems. So 7.8 out of 10 for Thor Love and Thunder for me. Solid score. Solid score. Uh, Thor, as I've said, is my absolute favorite in the entire MCU. I am a Shakespeare lover. I love the, the, the stakes of it. I love the focus of it. I love the language of it. And part of 
This movie, especially as we lose even more of that, as Thor has been through so much more since Ragnarok. And Ragnarok, that's still a core piece of him with allowing to show him so much more. And he goes through killing Thanos and then um, everything else that comes with that and relocating his people, all of those things involved. So he's been through the ringer, our, our good Thor, our good Thor man. And we have to accept that he is so much more different in this film, but we also have to accept that we need to be presented that in a consumable way in, in two hours, literally one hour and 59 minutes full runtime. I will say that I'm still in love with this character. I will say that I would absolutely see Thor five if it ever comes out, if there's even a plan for that. And parts of this, like Cam said earlier, they feel like episodic parts of this feel like they let the, Disney plus writers uh, come into this and say, you know, like when we write like the Disney plus series, there are moments in there where you're like, okay, move on. (laughs) We want, we're in the full film realm here. Uh, And I just want people to know that when you see this, it's the same character, you know, in love. Uh, But absolutely. As Cam said, it's not the best MC movie you've ever seen, but there are such incredible moments where it boosts it to the top quarter. Let's call it the top quarter. Um, not the not the top five, not the top ten, but really a solid story that keeps you guessing. Uh, the unpredictableness of it is there, and the core of it is super stellar. It's a super home run there. My score is very close to Cam's, the 7.6 out of 10 kernels. Wowzers. Tough one to score. I wonder... How we will feel upon second viewing. I haven't yet gone back and watched uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. There were so many things I liked about that movie too, but I feel like very soon we need to do another state of the MCU pod and say where things are at with, you know, Moon Knight's been there and gone. Miss Marvel's wrapping up. We've had Doctor Strange. We've had Thor now. We're, we're, we're deep into phase four of the MCU So I feel like there's lots to discuss and I feel like there are strong opinions on this phase of the MCUs that not just from us, but from everybody. So I want to have the conversation between the two of us so that we can get other people involved. Um, But yeah, Thor love and thunder 7.6 from Kirk 7.8 from me. Go out and see it this weekend. Let us know your thoughts. I expect this one to be fairly divisive amongst fans because I think that it really does have its own appeal and you're either in or you're not. Um, But ultimately it sounds like for both of us, the story is what carries it through and what keeps it in the, in the good graces um, despite some other ambitions that fall a little bit short. If I'm giving the consensus, that's like, you know how Rotten Tomatoes, they do the critic consensus. That's what I just did just now. So spoiler free review. Thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry. We went a little bit long, but we had lots of good stuff to talk about. Go see Thor love and thunder this weekend and let us know your thoughts on social media we will be excited to hear them but until that time we're going to give a special thanks to our executive producer ryan spriggs as well as the band that created our incredible original music rhetoric check them out anywhere you listen to music and we will see you guys next week talk to you then bye